take your Bibles. Join me in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as you're turning there, just want to let you know, if you are a man in here tonight and you are connected in some way to a student at Grace Christian Academy, on Saturday there is a men's breakfast for uh, any man connected to a student, you could be a father, you could be a, an uncle, you could be a brother, could be a grandfather, okay? Uh, but you are invited to this men's breakfast at GCA. Uh, it's just a chance to get together, to, to fellowship, to enjoy some, some uh, wonderful breakfast meal. And I'm going to be sharing about 15, 20 minutes about what it means to be a godly man. We're going to pray together for those students. And we need godly male role models for young people today. Would you agree? And so I'm, I'm just proud of the leadership at that school to provide this opportunity. Uh, we had a QR code, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, do we have, there it is. If you'd like to go, it's helpful to them if you could RSVP. Scan that if you don't mind and just let them know that you'd like to attend. Love to see you there, all right? Well, we got another hot potato tonight. I don't know how familiar you are with this particular uh, topic that we're going to be discussing. My family and I moved here in the wintertime, and so we have yet to experience a nice, humid North Carolina summer. <laughs> so looking forward to that. Uh, my kids are always looking forward to summer wherever we are. We did live in a pretty hot place back in the Central Valley of California. I don't know if it was as humid as it is here, but it got up in the triple digits quite often in the summertime. But they looked forward to summer among many reasons, one of which... Uh, is with regard to breakfast. Let me explain. My wife is not prone to, to purchase uh, very, very much in the way of a sugary cereal option throughout the year, you understand. But when summer comes, my kids know that she tells each one of them, you get one box of any cereal that you want. Whatever sugary goodness you crave, I will buy you one box to last you for the summer. So you want the Fruit Loops? Done. You want the Sugar Smacks, the Cocoa Puffs, the Apple Jack, whatever it is, you get one box, okay? But when that box is gone, it's back to Cheerios, okay? So enjoy, but take your time. And some of you may be like, well, dang, you people are strict. That's nothing. When I was growing up, my mother, Darla Ray Henson Grimm, she would not allow sugary cereal in the house. There was not so much as a frosted flake in our pantry. It was cornflakes. It was Cheerios. That's about it. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of sugary stuff. But if you asked young Scott growing up, what is your favorite cereal? I probably, out of that experience, would have told you my favorite cereal was grape nuts. I liked grape nuts. I still do. I like grape nuts. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the crunch. I like to know that you're working for your breakfast. I don't know. But the one thing I never understood, what is with the name? Grape nuts. They're not grapes. They're not nuts. What's the deal there? Now, don't send me a bunch of links in my email about the origin of the name grape nuts. I, if I really wanted to know, I could find that out if I cared to know. And the truth is, I, I don't. I don't care. Um, but this reminds me of what we're going to talk about tonight, because we're going to talk about uh, a subject that has a, a very interesting uh, name, a, a kind of a, a name that doesn't really make any sense. It's called progressive Christianity. You see, there is a wolf in sheep's clothing that has crept into the church, and it bears that name, progressive Christianity. And much like grape nuts is neither grapes nor nuts, progressive Christianity is neither progressive nor is it in any meaningful way or historic way Christianity, okay? And the religious circles in which this arose originally, it was, it was once called the emergent church. Maybe that rings a bell with you. And it's described as a postmodern theological approach. Maybe you know some of the names associated with progressive Christianity. They're, they're predominantly authors, people like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Richard Rohr, uh, Tony Jones, and many, many others. And in the beginning, that crowd was rather nebulous about what they believed. They kind of held the cards close to the vest in that sense. Over 
over time, their doctrine or their lack of doctrine has become apparent. And now they go by a new name, progressive Christianity, because you see God and Christianity are progressing. They are evolving. And it's presented as something new. It's presented as something revolutionary. It's not new. It's very, very old. In fact, if you were to study its theological underpinnings, uh, it would harken back to things that have gone before. If you know much about uh, church history, if you know much about uh, theology and the, and the, the history of doctrine and, and such, uh, there are liberal theologians that came out of Germany in the 1900s. There was a guy named uh, uh, Bultmann in the 1800s, a guy named Schleiermacher. They both had ways to interpret the Bible that are reminiscent of what we see here in progressive Christianity. Uh, you know, back even before that, if you know anything about Philosophy, you might know the names Hegel, you might know the name Kant. If you know anything about the heresies of the early church, you might know about Arianism or Marcionism or the Gnostics. And there are echoes of that, there are strains of that in progressive Christianity. But the truth is that you can trace this thing called progressive Christianity not just back to Germany in the 1800s, not just back to the early church uh, where there were heresies in the first century, but you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that is where this originated. You see, there is a satanic strategy behind progressive Christianity. Now, as I say that, I do not mean to imply that anybody who lumps themselves in with the progressives in that circle is somehow a closet Satanist. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. I'm saying that there are dark spiritual forces that guide and manipulate uh, this perspective in church circles to intentionally damage the foundations of the Christian uh, church. And I want you to look with me at what this strategy is and what the tenets of this belief system uh, are. And I'm going to study that with you tonight. Okay? But we're going to look first in Genesis 3, verse 1. It says this, now the serpent, who is that? That's our ancient enemy. That's the devil. That's Satan. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so right from the start, we see our enemy is crafty. He is cunning. And because he is cunning, he appears, I believe, as something alluring, something enticing. He calls him a serpent here, but I'm here to tell you, I don't think this is a serpent like you and I think of a serpent. I don't think this is a standard snake. If it were, I don't think that Eve would stand there and have a conversation with something quite so menacing. Uh, he is not scary, he is appealing, and he is appealing to her sensibilities. And this is how Satan has always operated in order to take down the people of God. And he's done it all throughout the history of the church. In Jude, in, in Jude 4, it says certain people have crept in, into where? Into the church, unnoticed ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. And so the church has been threatened effectively throughout its long history, not so much from without, but from within. And our enemy sneaks in there. And he did not try to firebomb Eden from outside the gates. He came into the garden. And folks, he's doing that with the church Today, And we're going to look at our enemy's ancient strategy employed first in the garden and employed today in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together in your word. And as we look at uh, some modern things that, that we need to be watchful about God. Lord, I, I can't help but think that there are very subtle tactics that our enemy uses, God. And I, I can imagine well-meaning uh, people in Christian circles wandering into a bookstore, maybe perusing a Christian book website, seeing a book that seems to resonate with them, with uh, some shared experience between them and the author of this book, and they hear a few lines that they agree with, and so they, they purchase the book, they consume the contents of that book, but hidden within its pages is a poison pill that does great damage to their faith. And God, I want us to be alert. I want us to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents as we deal with this wayward, wily uh, method of our enemy. And we pray your blessing and your power to be upon us tonight as we study in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let us continue on here. 
And we're going to look at the very first time that Satan deceived humanity, and it's in Genesis 3. And so he has already approached the woman. He says to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, did, did God say that? Is that what God said? If you were to go back in Genesis and you were to see the command, God gave Adam and Eve permission for the whole stinking garden. Man, whatever you want, you can have whatever there is. There's one tree. And this is the method of our enemy. He minimizes the vast permission of our God and he calls his word into question. And so this is Satan's progressive Christian method. You understand. Step one. There, I'm going to give you four steps to this strategy behind what, what is called progressive Christianity. And the first step in your notes is to distort or discredit God's word. So we, we see how Satan did it. He just kind of questions God's word. He kind of distorts it. He repeats it back to Eve with a twist, with a little manipulation there. And he questions. There's a tone. Did God actually say? There's an incredulity on his part as he says this to her. In progressive Christianity, in this movement, there are three ways that that continues to be done. And I'm going to give them to you. And the first way that that is done is, uh, number one in your notes, claim the Bible is inspired, is not inspired rather, but man-made. There's a claim that the Bible is not the word of God, but rather it's the product of human writing, of human ingenuity. They just challenge that the Bible is in fact God's word. And folks, this is what every cult in the history of, of mankind has sought to do, separate God's people from God's word. You see that in cults. You see that in the communist uh, uh, nations like, like, like China. You see it in the old Soviet Union. They would ban Bibles. In cults today, they replace the Bible, uh, when a cult is able to entice somebody away from a Christian community, they seek to uh, supplant uh, God's word with their own materials, with their own man-made religious concoctions in order to reprogram them, to, to just swap in their own ideology to get them away from the truth. Uh, you ever heard of Jim Jones? Uh, I come from the northern part of California before I moved here over in the Bay Area there was a church started by Jim Jones called the People's Temple Jim Jones started in Orthodox Christianity he was in a I think a, a fairly uh, Orthodox albeit charismatic church in the Midwest made his way west by the time he got out there he kind of lost his mind and he'd become a cult leader and he'd, become to, he'd, become to, he'd come to disrespect the word of God. And there's a story whereby he slams the Bible down. He, after reading it, he slams it down on the table and he says to those in his midst, I've got to destroy this book. Because he knew he would never be able to manipulate the people and, and reprogram their thinking as long as they had access to that book. And this is how they operate. And this is how Satan operates. And progressive Christianity has the same goal. It has the same objective. But it does it in a very different way. It doesn't uh, critique the Bible. It doesn't attack the Bible. It's very subtle. It's very seemingly nice. And what it attempts to do is to reframe the Bible. One of the most well-known progressive writers in progressive Christianity is a guy named Rob Bell. Rob Bell, very intelligent man, very gifted communicator, a very popular author. He's been on Oprah, he's been on all these places. In one of his books, he's on record as saying that the Bible is not written by God, you see, and I quote, he says, it's a library of books reflecting how human beings have understood the divine. It's a record of, of human experience. He says, what you're reading is someone's perspective that reflects the time and the place in which they lived. It's not God's perspective. It's theirs. This is a guy who came originally out of Willow Creek Church in Chicago. Okay? Out of, out of, out of what, was, what is regarded as an orthodox community. And so progressives reframe the Bible as a human document because if it's human, it's just like everything else out there, you see. There's no difference between that and any other book. And if it's human, it loses its power. And progressives say that the Bible never makes any claims to be the word of God. Is that true? 
Oh, contraire. The Bible makes many, many claims. Paul says in the New Testament, this we say to you by a word from the Lord. Okay? Jesus says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Countless times in the Old Testament, uh, the word of the Lord, it says, came to insert prophet's name. And the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And so repeatedly, the Bible claims to be from God, but progressives Progressive Christians deny this over and over and over. And if they're unwilling to go that far, they'll take the second tactic in your notes. Number two, they'll claim that only portions of the Bible are inspired. Okay? Okay, so maybe it's not all man-made. Some of it's from God, but just some of it. They'll affirm some parts of Scripture, but they'll reject others. And this is how people instinctively operate in a practical sense. I think most people uh, in ch- uh, not most people, but most churches have people that do this. Practically, they'll come to a service, they'll amen their way through a message, like, like tonight or, or on Sunday perhaps, and then they'll go home and all week long they'll just they'll live however they want. Because they've decided which parts of the Bible they're going to accept and obey and which parts they're not. Well, this is just kind of the, the, the formal theological take on all of that. And so you just do what you think is right. Thomas Jefferson famously had a Bible that he assembled himself. He took a pair of scissors, he went through different copies of the Bible, and he just cut out the parts that he liked, and he glued them into his own book. And he had his little Jeffersonian Bible. There is a group of scholars today called the Jesus Seminar. And these are all these uh, learned men that get together, and they, they talk about the historical Jesus, and they deduce what he likely said and what he likely did not say. And they conveniently leave out all the doctrinal things that they disagree with, like the atonement, like the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, like the deity of Christ, the historicity of some of the miraculous uh, portions of Scripture. And they just decide what to keep and what to leave. And there's a movement called Red Letter Christianity today. Uh, guys like Tony Campolo, maybe you know that name. Okay, people adhere to that. And they look at the red letters. Some Bibles have the words of Christ in red, and that's all they pay attention to. They leave all the rest. That's not worth uh, paying any mind to. What is the truth? Second Peter 1.20 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That means all of God's word is God's word. There's not one iota of it that came out of the mind of man. Every single jot, every tittle is from God. But progressive Christians, they ascribe inspired status to this and to that, but not to the uh, parts that, that don't sit well with them. They say, well, that's inspired, but that's not. And they engage in what I've called in here as, uh, I've called it Dalmatian theology. You know, the Bible's inspired in spots. And I'm inspired to spot the spots. See, So you see what I'm doing? I am taking authority away from the Bible, or at least parts of the Bible, but I am giving it all to me. I'm ascribing authority to myself. I'm authoritative to identify what is worth paying attention to. The third method that they use under this heading here is in your notes, number three, they claim the Bible can't be understood. You know, I mean, even if it were from God, we're not God, and so we can't possibly understand, we can't possibly decipher the Bible. And the idea that the Bible can be understood is a very old and very important doctrine. It's called perspicuity. And it just means that you, you, the Bible has clarity, that it can be grasped by human beings. And this, is, this has been a very important doctrine. They wrestled with this leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Some of you may have grown up Catholic. I would wager that if you grew up in a strict Catholic home, you probably didn't study the Bible a whole lot. You probably relied on your priest to explain it to you. And that is the history, and that is the tradition in the Catholic Church. Leading up to the Reformation, this was the view, that the, the, the common man was not mentally equipped. They were not able to understand the Bible. No, no, best to leave that to the bishop. Best to leave that to the priest. And then they would read it, and they would explain it to the great unwashed. And that is not what Martin Luther believed. Martin Luther steps forward and the other reformers and they say, no, no, the word of God is to be understood. It makes its own claim that it is inherently clear. And God communicates his message to all people, Pope 
or stable boy does not matter. Learned and unlearned, it's through his word that people should read and learn for themselves. Why do they believe that? Because Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We got any simpletons in here? I count myself among you. Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That It makes a claim of clarity right there. And so we need that. But the way that we understand it is that this is a spiritual book. This is, you have to, you, in order for you to understand that you can, you can grasp it, you've got to recognize it as being from God because that means it's a spiritual document. And the way that we understand a spiritual document is to be indwelled by the spirit that delivered that document. Because here's what 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so this book is clear to all who have the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, you have the potential to understand this amazing book right here. Now, you may not get it on, on the first pass. You might need to read it a few times. And I would recommend that. When you study the Bible, you read a passage, read it a couple times. Don't just read it and go, oh, you got me. Read it again. Read it three times, four times. Read it to where you can, you can repeat the basic details of what you're reading to somebody else. And then you go back to it. Bible study is not meant to be a one and done thing. We go back to that well and God lets us drink deep. But here's Satan's strategy as we continue on in Genesis. Look at verse two. He's told her, he said, he's questioned God's word. Has God really said blah, blah, blah? And here's what she says to her credit. Verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, <laughs> you will not surely die. You will not surely die. And this is step two in your notes. Deny essential doctrine. Okay, notice the sequence. What did he do first? Question the Bible is God's word. He questioned the word of the Lord. Did God really say? This is what progressives do. They question the Bible. It's not really God's word, or only some of it is God's word, or you didn't really read it right because you can't understand it. And now what does Satan do? He says, you will not surely die. Folks, the progressives will then begin to deny essential doctrine. And this is the sequence. Once you question God's word, then you can dismiss essential core theological truth. Why are you able to do that? Because where do we find doctrine? In the word of God. Once you call that into question, you can dismiss whatever you want. Anything you want. And the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die. Now, when he says that, what are the implications of that? He means to say, silly woman, there's no such thing as sin. <laughs> there certainly aren't any consequences for sin. You will not surely die. What you, no, no, what you have perceived to call sin, what you have perceived God to call sin, that's not really sin. And, and not only does it not exist, but you, you definitely... Uh, should not expect to be punished for doing what, what you feel you should do. There's no consequences. Listen, if there's no sin and there's no consequences for sin, logically, what's next? There's no need for redemption of sin. Okay? And so you see how the, how the dominoes start to fall? If there's no sinfulness of man, there's no wages for sin. And if there's no wages for sin, then there is no need for us to be restored. And we then begin to question a very important core doctrine in the Christian life. And it's the doctrine of soteriology. What is that? Salvation. If there's no sin, there's no need for salvation. And so you could just dispense with that idea. There's no need for Christ to go and die on a cross for you. And so in progressive Christianity, this is a core doctrine that has been attacked. Is this notion that Jesus had to die on a cross to pay for the sin of fallen man. And what do we call that when Jesus died on the cross? What do we call that? We call that 
the atonement. The atonement. And that is a doctrine that is so essential to the Christian faith and it is so hated by progressive Christianity. There are different views on the atonement, but the one that that makes the most sense, and, and this is the one that we teach at the Lamb's Chapel, it's called the Penal Substitutionary Atonement. And all that means is that we are sinful, that we owe a debt we cannot pay, and Jesus, God in the flesh, was the only worthy sacrifice, and when he died on the cross, he died as a payment for our sin. That is what we believe, that is what we teach unapologetically here. And he therefore absorbed the wrath of God, which was previously on us. And he took that for us. Progressive Christians hate, hate, hate this doctrine. It is unfathomable to them. First, they reason, well, if this is true, then that means that sin is a big deal to God. And we've already asserted sin is not a big deal to God. Uh, but then there's this whole idea that God would, would demand a sacrifice for sin, a blood sacrifice. Why, that's, that, that, that's so bloodthirsty. That's so violent. That just, doesn't that run counter to the nature of God as we see him? And then what's even worse is the whole idea that he would demand his own son to become that sacrifice. What kind of a God does that? Why, that's, that's, and they call it cosmic child abuse. Cosmic child abuse. How could God behave in such a way? And why would we ever want to worship a God like that? Isn't the violent nature of this view counter to the nature of God? And they say, well, he must have, Jesus must have died for another reason. There had to be another reason because obviously Jesus died on the cross. And so there had to be a different reason. It couldn't be that, obviously. And so there are a lot of alternative, wrong-headed views as to the reason that Christ died. But one that seems to resonate with these progressives is called the example theory. And the example theory says that Christ died on the cross not not to absolve us of our sin, not to pay any price, not to satisfy some righteous requirement of the law. No, he died to show us uh, how to be loving and how to be sacrificial and how to put other people first. That's why he died. He didn't die to forgive you. He didn't die to reconcile you, to absolve you. He died to inspire you. That's the example theory. And so what, what, what progressives have done by resorting to this, by saying that Christ died so that we would learn a lesson, so that we would put into practice what he has taught us, and we would therefore be like him, we would be selfless, we would be loving, we would be obedient, we would do good works. And just like that, we've taken the faith back to this errant view of earning the favor of God by being good, by doing good things. That's not progressive. That's regressive. See, the Jews already had this mentality. Wrongly. They had already manipulated the law into this thing whereby you earn heaven by doing good works. And that was never God's intent. And the only difference between what the Jews believed and what progressives believe is their idea of heaven. See, progressives don't see heaven as this literal place on a different spiritual plane. They see it as the best of all possible worlds right here, right now. And so when we enact good and when we're obedient, when we treat our fellow man like Christ would, the idea is that we're creating heaven right here. It's a, it's a, it's a social experiment. And we're achieving some greater good right here, right now. But in essence, heaven is achievable by good works. Folks, that's the opposite of grace. That's the opposite of Christianity. Now, is the atonement violent? Oh, you better believe it's violent. No, absolutely. Is it bloody? Yes. But is that counter to the nature of God? No. Why? Because God has a standard of righteousness, and it requires a sacrifice. When God's standard is violated because of his character, there is a necessary sacrifice to satisfy that righteous requirement. It's part of his character. But, but this whole idea that he very selfishly, very coldly, very callously subjected someone other than himself to be abused and to die and to be tortured for us, that is not true. 
And that belief actually violates another core doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? It's that God is three persons in one. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one in their essence. They are unified in their deity. Yes, they are separate in their personhood, but they are one. And so God did not send someone else at no cost to himself to die in our place. God himself climbed up on that cross in the form of Jesus Christ for you and for me, okay? And so most progressives say, I don't believe that. See, their view of Christ is not one of deity. They've dismissed Christ as, he's not God. He's a, he's a good man. He's a good moral teacher that we are to learn from. And so they say, I don't, I, don't, I don't have to believe in the atonement to benefit from the teachings of Christ. I can just put them into practice. I don't have to believe that Jesus is God to follow his teachings. He's a good moral instructor. instructor. Well, there are a lot of good moral instructors out there. I mean, just pick what, why we, why we follow in Jesus. If he's just a man, there's a lot of guys out there that are supposedly good philosophical examples. Um, why don't we just... I'll follow them. Theologian Michael Kruger wrote a book that was a critique on, on this topic of progressive Christianity. And he summarized all the basic beliefs. And what he did is he took a devotional series by a guy named Richard Rohr, who in turn had taken a book by another progressive named Philip Gully. Philip Gully. And Gully's book was basically a confession of the progressive Christian creed. It was just basically these are the ten... Uh, beliefs, the 10 core tenets that we adhere to. And one of them in your notes is this. Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. This is what progressive Christians believe. Is he a model for living? I think we'd all agree Jesus is our model for living. Would you agree? Should we pattern our life after him? Well, sure, there's gotta be some kind of life application. If all we do uh, is gather once or twice a week and sing Waymaker or some of these other songs that we know and that's it. We don't have any life application. There's nothing, no change, no obedience, nothing like that. We, we don't carry that out in any practical sense. That's a pretty shallow faith. But if you take this statement, you boil it down, what you see is that it strips Christ of the glory that he is due and it, it, it just makes him a mere moral man. And this is something that C.S. Lewis dealt with in one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity. And I want to put this quote on the screen. It says this. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Christ. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, uh, with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Was Christ a great moral teacher? Yes, but he was so much more than that. And this is Lewis's famous lunatic liar or Lord argument here. Jesus was, he was either a crazy person, he was a bald-faced bald liar, or he was exactly who he claimed to be. Did he claim to be God? Absolutely he did. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He told the Pharisees before Abraham was born, I am and that phrase, ego eimi, in the Greek, I am, is not lost on the Jews. They recognize it from, from uh, you know, Exodus when, a, when Moses is at the burning bush and God announces his presence, I am, that I am. It's a claim to self-existence. Only God could say, I am, and have it mean what he meant. And the Jews understood exactly what Christ meant. And we know that because they picked up rocks and tried to stone him for blasphemy. You don't stone somebody 
who's not claiming to be God in that culture. And we, we, we see what he said about himself. We see what his own disciples said about him. John said he's the word. The logos in the beginning was the word. And the word was made, uh, excuse me, the word was with God. And the word was God. His own disciples worshiped him. Peter uh, at, at Caesarea Philippi declared him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Paul eagerly awaited the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul and John both declared that Jesus created the universe. That's what the Jews understood God to have done. And he's saying, you did it, Lord. And he routinely, furthermore, by his own actions, did miracles that could only be attributed to God. And so he made this claim by his words, by his company, by his works. Progressive Christianity belittles all that. They belittle it all. And we see the strategy continue as the serpent goes on in Genesis 3 and verse 5. He says, he's already said, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, <laughs> your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, let me ask you a question. Is any of that true? Is any of what the, the serpent said there true? Yes, yes. The serpent is speaking some truth there. When Eve eats of that tree, will her eyes be opened? Yes, they will. Will she be like God? Yes, in the sense that she will know good and evil. is exactly what the serpent said. I mean, after all, that's the name of the tree, right? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right there in the label. But all this feeds into another stratagem of progressive thought. In your notes, step three, disguise falsehood by wrapping it in truth. Disguise falsehood by wrapping it in truth. The devil loves to surround his lies with truth. To make them attractive. I used to have a German shepherd. She had to take medicine. She would never take the medicine. If I just tried to give her a pill out of my hand, she'd never take it. So I'd stick it in a hot dog. And suddenly it was irresistible. And she'd gobble that thing down, man. The devil likes to give us a poison pill and a hot dog. Okay? And so he makes these principles attractive. Every single tenet of progressive Christianity is partly true. And that's why it's so difficult to detect it first. So difficult to argue against. Uh, I referenced that book by Philip Gully. Here are some more of his tenets. I'm going to just kind of go through these as we move forward here. The next one in your notes, they say affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Is that true? Sounds pretty good. I mean, there is some truth to that. I mean, we are to affirm people's potential. Does every person have potential? Yes, every person has potential. We need to clarify something. Your potential is found where? In Christ. You have potential, but only so far as you receive Jesus Christ and you are in him. That is your potential, okay? Uh, your potential, the only thing good in you, and by good, I mean of eternal value, you see, there's nothing in and of you naturally, innately, that is of eternal value unless you connect it with Jesus Christ. How do you, you, you must become righteous in his sight. How do you become righteous? You do it by acknowledging your sinful state and trusting in Christ. When he indwells you, now you've got real potential. Here's what... 2 Corinthians 5 says, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we become the righteousness of God. Until then, we're filthy rags. Here's another from Gully's book. He says, The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Now, I don't think anybody would argue against the concept of reconciliation. It's all the rage today, particularly racial reconciliation, okay? Uh, people long for reconciliation. But what are we really talking about here? One of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is to focus less on how humans relate to God and how humans relate to other humans. And they focus on that. And when they talk about reconciliation, that is what... They're talking about, now reconciliation is good, right? I mean, we are to forgive one another, are we not? 
That's appropriate. That is right. We're studying Ephesians on the weekend. We're looking at two groups of people, Jew, Gentile. We are one in the body, in the form of the church. That's reconciliation. But what makes that reconciliation possible? You see, God is more concerned not so much with man being reconciled to man. That's good. But the ultimate focus of him is that man be reconciled to God. Because without that reconciliation, there is no other reconciliation. And so the implication here is that reconciliation is impossible, according to the progressive, unless we eradicate the notion of making judgments. You gotta get rid of making judgments. Reconciliation is what's important, not, 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 not making judgments, see. And they define making judgments as taking a stand on a moral issue, on, on, on behavior, on um, addressing certain lifestyles. You ever, you ever taken a stand on a moral issue and, and what, what do you get hit with? Now, judge not, lest you be judged. You ever get that? You know, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And so they, they try to make you feel like you're some sort of a, a jerk, really, for making a judgment. By the way, they don't understand what judge not means. You understand. But if you've ever pointed out that, say, homosexuality is not God's best, well, then you get a lecture on, on how you need to love gay people. Uh, but context is utterly ignored in these verses. And then there's this, there's this assumption that, uh, that somehow to, to identify a lifestyle as unpleasing to God, that, that, that's unloving. And what they don't realize is that it's impossible to be loving without first acknowledging wrongdoing. Okay? There is no reconciliation. No one can have reconciliation without acknowledging wrongdoing. I mean, that's just reality. And so let me tell you, God is preoccupied with you being reconciled to him because that is what makes it possible for you to be reconciled to other people. You've got to have that unity. Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden. What, what makes us one? The unifying spirit, reconciliation between God and man makes reconciliation between man and man possible. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there it is. And then there's this tenet of progressive thought in your notes. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Is, is being gracious a good thing? Should we strive to be gracious? Oh, yes. You know, a recent poll said that a majority of Americans considered the most respected spiritual leader in America to be Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey, not a theologian, not a pastor, not, a, not an evangelist, not a missionary, a talk show host. Why? She's nice. She's nice. She's relatable. She's friendly. She's, she's generous. Huh? Is that true? Is she generous? You get a car, and you get a car, and you get, remember that? Some of you are like, you know, church would be a lot more fun if we could do that. Well, there are some churches like that, unfortunately, okay? Uh, is it important for Christians to be gracious? Yes, absolutely. Scripture tells us be patient, be gentle, be kind, be loving. This phrase that gracious behavior is more important than the right belief, it belittles doctrine. It belittles theology. It's essentially saying it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're nice, as long as you are sweet and kind and the real problem in the church, they allege here, is that people are too invested, too interested in theology. Too interested in right belief. And it makes doctrinal pursuits and theological understanding the habit of the mean-spirited, of, 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 of the dogmatic, of the divisive. And our goal cannot be divisiveness. Well, I would submit our goal cannot be abstaining from being divisive because you have a book in your lap right now that is very divisive 
The word of God is divisive. And let me tell you something. If you are proclaiming what is in that book and nobody's getting offended, you're not doing it right. Now, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to make it your goal to offend people. Okay? Don't go smack somebody in the head with your Bible and, and, and call them a reprobate and say they're going to go to hell. That's not how we do this, okay? It's not you go to hurt people's feelings, but the reality is the Bible on its own is a stumbling block. It is offensive to the worldly mindset, okay? Here's another one in your notes. Inviting questions is more important than supplying answers. That's what the progressive said. Are questions bad? Is it wrong to have questions? No. I get questions almost every day. I get them in my email. I get them on Facebook. I get them in person. I, people call me with questions. I love questions. Anybody who knows me knows I love questions. Every, I, I led a young adult's Bible study for 11 years. This was the centerpiece of every time we got together was questions. And I loved when they would ask questions. And I didn't pretend to have all the answers. But what's the point of a question, ideally? It's to find an answer. And where do we find answers? We find them in the Word of God. And so when I study the Bible, when I prepare for a sermon, this is, I, it's, it's based around questions. I read the text. I write questions that I have. And I think God made us this way. He's designed us to ask questions. The truth is progressives are more interested in the questions than they are the answers. And the goal of a question is to find an answer. Okay? Uh, and I suspect that, that what they're saying here, the reason behind it is to position themselves as humble seekers instead of, you know, self-righteous know-it-alls. Because we're not to be that. And progressives value this, this, this exploration of the truth uh, because, after all, truth is subjective. And uh, they would often say, well, who are we to know? Who am I to say? You know, uh, anybody who claims to know for certain what God is saying on a matter, well, that's the height of arrogance right there because the Bible can't really be understood. And if you're claiming that you understand it, then you're claiming that you're God. And that's, that's the, the, the epitome of self-righteousness. We should always say, they say, I don't know, because that's what it means to be humble. Because what is truth? What is truth? You know who said that phrase, who asked that question in Scripture? What is truth? It wasn't Jesus. It was Pontius Pilate. Jesus said, I am the truth. And Pilate said, what is truth? Who's to say what truth is? You know, it's true for you, may not be true for me, may not be true for her, for him. And so progressive Christianity is basing its philosophy practically not on the words of Christ, but on the words of this pagan Roman named Pontius Pilate. And when you say there's no such thing as truth, the only way that you would ever come to that conclusion is if you are asserting that the Bible is not the word of God. Because if it is, if it is the inspired word of God, can we know truth? Yes, we can. We can absolutely know truth. If you say we can't know truth, what you're really saying is, I don't believe that truth. I don't believe that truth. Progressive Christianity also says in your notes, Encouraging personal search is more important than group uniformity. Your personal search is more important than group uniformity. Uh, I don't believe that Christianity stifles free thinking. I don't believe that Christianity is all about conformity to some club. Uh, but I do think that it is about conformity to Christ. And so we are to conform to Christ. But the statement here says that encouraging personal search is more important than group uniformity. It gets points for this. I would say that it gets points for emphasizing the concept of a journey. Because Christianity is a journey. We are on a journey. Now, the right term for that journey, theologically, is sanctification. That you are being made to be more holy. You're being made more into the image of Christ. That is not what the progressives are talking about when they're talking about this journey. This is a journey of exploration for myself. For me to decide what I believe. What is right for me. My truth. This is my truth. Okay? When Rob Bell started out, uh, it was very vague what he believed and what he taught, you understand. And then when he finally wrote his, his breakout 
book, Love Wins, in which he asserted that God doesn't send anyone to hell. And furthermore, Bell asserted that hell is not what we traditionally have thought hell to be, that hell is, is really just the worst of mankind on earth, that it's, 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 you know, it's, it's slavery, it's poverty, it's, it's a, a, atrocious human conditions and oppression and all these things, these wrong things that man does to man. That's hell. And that's the first time when he came out of that book, that was the first time that he kind of showed his cards theologically. We didn't know what he believed before. You know why? Because he was on a journey. He was figuring out what he believed. He was progressing, see, And he's still progressing because since Love Wins, he's come out with a few more books. He's picked up steam. He's come out with a book where he's talking about the Bible and how it's not the word of God. And God doesn't uh, doesn't really inspire anything. It's totally man-made. And my estimation is that he will continue to evolve in his belief. And it would not surprise me one bit if one day he came out with a book or a statement saying that he wasn't sure there was a God at all. Because I think that's where this all leads. I think he's practically there now. Because if you deny the essentials of the faith, you are not of God. You are not a true child of God. But I think eventually, they'll just come out and disavow it all. And another tenet of progressive thought in your notes, meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. Meeting actual needs. See, all these have a germ of truth. They all sound right upon first listen. Meeting needs. Do we want to meet needs in the church? Do we do that at, at TLC? Yeah, we have ministry partners where we're meeting needs, we're helping the poor, we're, we're uh, uh, you know, supplying things in times of, of, of uh, tragedy or disaster overseas. We're doing things. Uh, th- this is actually germane to the origin of the church in Acts 4. You see this new infant church. It says they had everything in common. Uh, there was not a needy person among them. So this has always been a part of the church. It continues to be a part of the church, so we kind of have a straw man argument here. Nobody's saying that meeting needs isn't important, nor are they saying that maintaining institutions is more important. But what progressives are doing when they say it's more important than maintaining institutions, they're actually undercutting a specific institution, and it's the institution of the church. Because you see, progressive Christianity does not think much of the church as an organized religious structure. Uh, A lot of the people, the prominent voices in progressive Christianity come from other churches where they experienced hurt, where they got wounded, and in progressive communities, they get together and they talk about that hurt and they hash it out. And it's this unhealthy group dynamic where they're codependent in terms of their their varied uh, background of hurt and they, they build a community off of that. And their whole uh, MO is to tear down the traditional institution of the church. And their beef with the church might be valid in some sense. It might be that the church is too corporate. It might be that the church is uh, too commercial. And I've been in churches like that. And I didn't approve of, of churches being run like that. I don't think churches ought to be run like a Fortune 500 company. That's not how churches are to be designed. But there's such a disdain for the, the biblical concept, concept of the church that they, they, they pursue this fluidity. They disavow any kind of traditional structure that contributes to a biblical worldview of the body of Christ. And they pursue something that's, that's you know, it's more loose. Like, let's just, let's just keep it simple. Let's just meet people's needs. Let's make it all about social justice. Let's make it all about feeding the hungry, about clothing the naked, about helping the poor, giving shelter to the homeless, you know? And all of those things are good. But when those things become the focal point, you have a problem. We are not to abandon meeting people's needs, but when those things take center stage, you have a shift And the gospel, and the gospel begins to be about meeting physical needs. And folks, the gospel cannot be about meeting physical needs. The gospel is about meeting your singular, eternal need. What is the gospel? Paul spells it out, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, there's the atonement, In accordance with the scripture, that's the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. 
that he was buried, that's a physical death as a sacrifice for you, that he was raised, that's a physical resurrection, to conquer death, hell, and the grave. On the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and there he affirms the Bible again. And that is the gospel. That is what saves if you have faith in it. Nothing else. And then step four in this strategy Deceive by delighting immediate sensibilities, okay? What does Satan do next? What does that old serpent do in uh, verse six? It says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See what happened? He appealed to her immediate sensibilities. There was delight, in her eyes. And this is what progressive Christianity does today. It appeals to what we value, uh, what the culture tells us is important. Rob Bell says we gotta make the gospel more broad. We gotta make it warmer. We gotta make it kinder, more popular. In Gully's book, he says this in your notes, peacemaking is more important than power. Peacemaking. Let's have peace. That's appealing. That appeals to my sensibilities. I like peace. And this is based on the recognition that there are some church leaders that abuse power. Does that ever happen? It does. The progressives all know that because they come from these environments where they've witnessed that. And that's embittered them against the church. 1 Peter 5 warns against that. But just know that this statement is designed to undercut church authority. You see. So they paint with a broad brush. Just because there are church leaders that abuse power, they say that authority in the church is to be dismissed. And let's focus on peacemaking, meaning whenever any pastor makes a bold, a bold uh, uh, instruction against a certain lifestyle, when he, whenever any church exercises discipline, a discipline towards someone engaged in a wrong lifestyle or issues a rebuke for someone who is out of line theologically, uh, the progressives say that's heavy-handed, that's, that's authoritarian. And they equate authoritarianism with church authority. Folks, church authority and authoritarianism are not the same at all. Church authority is biblical. Paul tells Titus that the pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Remember when Jesus was with the Samaritan woman? And what did he say to her? He said, you've had five husbands and you're shacking up with a guy that you're not married to right now. Was that heavy-handed? Was he out of line? Was he a jerk? No. No. W was that antithetical to peace? To peacemaking? This is the same man who says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. It's just that the progressive Christian version of peace is not Jesus' version of peace. And here's one that's rather pointed at current culture. They say this in your notes. They say, we should care more about love and less about sex. Don't be so preoccupied with who's sleeping with who. We should focus on love. If, is love central to the Christian faith? Absolutely. We don't have love. We're a clanging symbol. I know that. Paul said that. But is it unloving to tell people that they're engaged in something that is unpleasing to God? People engaged in a, in a sexual lifestyle with someone they're not married to. Uh, people engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. People who are in the trans lifestyle. This statement says, doesn't matter what you're engaged in as long as you're loving. And so what they're doing here, this is Satan's deceptive strategy. Instead of recognizing that they're engaged in sexual sin, they, they elevate, they uphold, they trumpet those people's moral values. They spotlight a moral virtue on people who are living antithetically to God's word and God's will. And you see this in the culture on virtually every TV show that you'll watch with your family. You'll see a gay character, a trans character, uh, a hetero character that sleeps with everybody that has legs. 
And all of these characters are portrayed in a virtuous light. They are noble. They are downright heroic. And so our human instinctive response to this is we look at that and then we hear examples that people say, well, I know so-and-so and they're gay and they're, they're the one most wonderful person. They're very committed. In fact, they're married and they've been with this person for years and years and years and years and years. And so we hear all that and our humanness goes, whoa, wait, maybe I should reevaluate things. I mean, they're good people. They're good moral people. Maybe their lifestyle isn't so bad. How could their behavior be so bad if they're such wonderful people? And it causes us to question our views. And the subtle premise at work here is basically that what makes an an activity bad is if the one doing it is a jerk, you see. So, you know, that's not how we are to determine the merit of an activity. We're not to define morality That way, what makes an activity sinful is not how we perceive the people engaged in it. It's whether or not it's in conflict with God's character. And the other idea presented here is that God doesn't care about this stuff. Does God care about this stuff? He absolutely does. The notion that he's got bigger things to worry about is an insult to God. It's an insult to his sovereignty and his uh, his omnipotence, and they try to portray him as some hip, laid-back grandfather who just wants us to be happy. God's goal for your life is not for you simply to be happy. God's goal is for you to be holy, as he is holy. And so when we undermine something he created like sex, we undermine other things that he created like marriage, like the family. And then there's this, and this is the final one. Life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Man. You ever heard somebody say, hey, don't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? Now, I I, I get what they mean. They mean, don't don't be so preoccupied with the Lord coming back that you shirk your present responsibilities in this world. Okay, fair enough. I think that's an oversimplified statement. What the progressive means here with this is that the notion of the afterlife is not something that we can be certain about because we can't really understand the Bible, and so we can't really know what to expect with regard to the afterlife, but what really matters is this life. And so they focus on this life, what's happening right here, sheltering the poor, meeting people's needs, uh, healing the hurting. All of those things matter to God, uh, but it ignores the thing that matters most to God, which is your eternal need Philip Gully says that if the church were Christian, we would do what Jesus did, which is to equip one another to live better in the world and stop fretting about the next one. That sounds nice. But you know what Jesus literally said? He said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Is hell real? Progressive Christians say no. They don't want you to think about hell unless you're thinking about it in a figurative sense. But you know who talked about hell more than anybody in the whole Bible? Jesus. Jesus talked about hell. Hell is real. There are people there now and people will continue to go there and the thing that will send more people to hell than anything is a religious system based on doing good moral deeds and nothing more that doesn't recognize proper doctrine of your sinfulness, your need for a savior who paid an atoning price for you. And progressive Christianity boils down to this do-it-yourself brand of utopia on earth. And here in your notes is the ultimate goal, deconstruction of faith. This is the ultimate goal. We've seen many, many people in the last few years who are in the public eye, who have identified as Christians, walk away from the faith. People whom I, at one point, have admired have done this. Worship leaders, authors, even pastors have disavowed the faith. And they didn't start, it didn't happen overnight. They started by, by contemplating things. Now, I'm not saying they lost their salvation. John's, First John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Okay? So let's get that right. But you've got some people who it never took root in their heart. And they, instead of working through their questions, they let their questions fester. And they never found resolution. 
and they end up disavowing everything that they were immersed in intellectually. And they've, they've come to this conclusion. They don't really believe the Bible. They don't really believe that Jesus uh, literally died and rose from the dead. They don't really know if there's a God. Maybe they're rejecting the notion of a God altogether. And this is Satan's end game with progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is not converting anybody to Christ. I promise you that. Okay? Uh, most of the people in progressive Christianity are disillusioned people that have come from environments of hurt and they've gathered together to, to wallow in that. In Eden, Satan was not concerned with illuminating Adam and Eve, with drawing them into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, with helping them understand his true purpose, his true word, his true promises. His goal was to separate them from God. And that is his goal with progressive Christianity because people are creeping in to the church undetected. It's not of God. How do we guard against it? You stay in this book. You stay in this book. You acquaint yourself with the genuine article so that you can recognize the counterfeit. And you can call it out. And we must call it out. We must call it out. Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Be on guard. That's part of your job description as a believer. Be on guard. Love people. But part of loving people is to shepherd them against false teaching. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the attentiveness of this group. There's a lot of uh, content tonight, God, but it's so important, I really believe, because the enemy would love nothing more than to get his slimy claws all over your bride and to uh, throw a detour on the path of seekers who are looking for truth and are, are driven uh, askew, driven off course by something that looks appealing, that something that sounds right, something that drapes itself in the visage of your church, but is a counterfeit. Help us to be wary, help us to be alert, Help us to be in tune with truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you this weekend.